Hello, and welcome to another edition of Bobby and Jens. How are things on your side of the pond, Jens Vogt? Uh, very good. I just finished um, working as a commentator at Perinese, and that was quite exciting with the interesting twist on the very last day. So I'm all good on my side of the ocean. So I am very excited to have one of my favorite riders on the podcast today. Very seldom does a rider do something that sticks in the memories of the other riders, uh, like Juan Antonio Flecha. When we were racing, I was, I just instantly became a fan of this. Yeah, he was a kid at that time. When I saw him do his famous Fletcher, draw back the bow, let the arrow fly, sort of victory salute. And um, I, was, I was a fan, like instantly I was a fan of this guy. Our paths didn't cross very often because during our careers at least, because he was like one of the hard men of the classics and well, I wasn't. I didn't do many of those races. So it's gonna be a great interview and um, can't wait to hear what he has to say and what he's been up to. Welcome to Bobby and Jens, Mr. Juan Antonio Fletcher. Hello, Bobby. Hello, Jens. Very pleased to be here with you today. Man, I tell you, you have always been one of my favorite riders and people in the sport of cycling. But to our listeners out there that maybe don't know you as well as Jens and I do, let's start from let's start from the beginning. I mean, you so you were born in Argentina. Tell us about your your childhood there, and then when you moved to to uh, to Spain. Yeah, exactly. I was, uh, as you will say, I was born in Argentina and um, my dad died in a car crash when I was three, four years old. So I was very little. And later on, obviously, uh, yeah, get into cycling in Argentina, I start cycling there in a complete different context of what is it is in Europe and without knowing exactly what what cycling was really apart of what I could really see those weekends on the races and um it's very nice i always say how different and i don't know how it is in the us but at least in argentina cycling is a sport brought from by europeans to argentina and um it's kind of connecting those routes you know so it's i remember going to the races and seeing those of sons of italian immigrants spanish immigrants there and uh and yeah, it was like being in Europe almost. It was such a European sport and everyone was getting those cycling caps and jerseys and, oh, look at this, this is a Campagnolo cap. Or, you know, it was all looking back to where that's, that people roots were coming from. And uh, I think that was one of the nicest thing about uh, cycling in Argentina and South America. I imagine Colombia is completely different, but um, yeah, it was very nice. Obviously, later on, we moved to Spain and uh, when I was 11 and I realized, find out that actually cycling could be a professional sport and by professional, it was like it was broadcasted on TV. You could see all those huge cycling teams, infrastructures. And so it was Tour of Catalonia that I could see on the, on the, on the roadside and... and yeah, be present on, on that race of all the atmosphere. That was when I basically realized and say, actually, 
that would be my life goal. I want to become a professional cyclist. Wow. I actually got to spend time in Argentina when I was 18 years old. So it was 1990. I just graduated from <laughs> high school and we had our U.S. national A-team camp down there. So we went to Argentina for about a month. We did quite a few races, but the race that I really remember is the Torre Mendoza. And nice. we stayed there, like I said, for about a month. And we had a helper that was this man, and he had this little boy. And this boy turned out to be J.J. Hayato, Juan Jose Hayato, who, Jens, you remember, he was a teammate of ours. So, like, I meet this kid when he's super young. He wound up coming up to me, I think, in the tour of Georgia in, like, 2004. He's like, hey, Bobby, do you remember me? I'm like, I have no idea who you are. He's like, yeah, you came down to Argentina for Torre Mendoza. My dad helped you guys, and I was the, the little kid there. And I was like, wow, okay. But that, that camp was so cool. And like you said, the, the, the culture of cycling down there was, was so massive. And like you said, very much a European influence. But um, man, that, that camp, that U.S. national team camp, now that I think about it, brings back memories. Because we had the track team guys like Aaron Hartwell and Matt Heyman. We had the senior men's A team, which back then was, oh boy, let me think, James Urbanis, uh, Greg McNeil, Bob Mianski, Nate Schaefer, um, John Fry. These are all names that uh, hopefully our listeners, listeners will remember. And we also had the women A team. And don't remember, I, I think we had Ruthie Mathis, I remember Marion Clignier and Inga Thompson Benedict. Like, I don't know if you guys remember these names, but they were like big, big uh, legends of the sport. And I got to go down there and, and train with them. So, man, it was great. The other thing I remember down there was that was the year that Mike Tyson got knocked out by Buster Douglas. And we watched the pay per view event on this little tiny TV, like black and white. And you can barely see it, but like, Mike Tyson was like untouchable. And then next thing you know, his mouthpiece is on the floor and he's getting knocked out by Buster Douglas. So great memories for me down in Argentina. And um, well, yeah, just a, just a cool place. I'd love to go down and visit again. So now you're nice. over in Spain and like, what is, you know, I know what it's like, you know, going through the ranks in the US, Jens, you know what it's like, you know, going through Germany, but what was the the next step from going from a kid that just moved to Spain that likes to race bikes into becoming a professional? What was uh, some moments there in your career? Well, obviously, you start growing up as a cyclist on small, you know, schools. I start cycling next to. I mean, I, I, we moved to a place nearby where. Uh, uh, Isaac Galvez, I don't know if you remember him, he, he passed away a few years ago on the track in six days of Ghent. He was professional with um, Ias Baleares and Kelme. He won some good races and uh, his dad used to have like a cycling school and that's the one I joined and from there, from those early years, I was 11. Then you go through junior and the crucial moment was under 23 years because that's in Spain where all the big level, like the biggest racers and cyclists, it all gathers in, in North Spain, in Basque Country, because that's 
the place where the better team so you know the level is much higher so it happened to me that as a junior i i won like the the ranks on on catalonia and it turned the time it, it came the time where well I, I could either stay and and be safe and comfort zone and raise start raising as an under 23 on a lower level and little by little growing up but i i knew like I wanted to learn quicker and he didn't mind for me much to do the effort of driving, well, driving, getting in a bus on Friday night for six hours to bus country and racing on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday coming back. And that was my routine for the first years. Everyone was like, you're going to be burned out, man. That's not really the right decision. You're too young. The level there is too high. And, um, and, uh, yeah, you're not going to last that long. And despite all that, I just went against all that criticism and bad advice, basically, because that was my choice and I wanted to, to be at that level. And and I remember the first season, under 23, I ended this, ended up the season earlier than maybe in August. The season was until the end of September, October, but, but August was true. I had enough of that. But before that, I achieved really good results and good level, and and I had the chance of racing with really good riders like uh, Igor Astarloa, Ivan Mayo, Zubeldia. So all those kids, they were also growing up in Basque Country and racing at that level, and um, that was a good choice. I made my career as an under twenty three on 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 that region, and basically doing that like traveling to Basque Country on the weekends and coming back on Sunday night. I have to tell that like on Saturday, I was normally shattered. I, I mean, I, I, wasn't a, I wasn't good on Saturday. Saturday was not my good day because they were doubling up always. There was also like so many choices of races. Every weekend there were races. That on Saturday, I wasn't performing at my best, but Sunday, yeah, I could get out some good results. So um, when and how did you ever get your first proper race bike? Already as a child in Argentina or in yeah. Spain? Yeah, Argentina, definitely. That was that was a Christmas gift, and I got inspired by my neighbor who was uh, yeah, he was fixing shoes around the corner, and he used to race in the weekends. Uh, I said, "Oh, I spotted that race bike that he had." I said, "That's the bike I won." I was seven years old, and and for Christmas I got that gift, and and that was my race bike. Was. Not really the race bike where we understand in, in, in Europe because he had just one. It was more like a fixie, but with a freewheel at the back. And that was a crit style of racing in Argentina. You, you, you used to race crits more like, uh, used to, we used to ride with just one brake at the front and, um, yeah, like a fixed style with a freewheel at the back. And that was it. All categories from kids to, 40 years old, they will all race that Sunday and uh, barbecues, asado, famous asado, as, as you may know. And, and it was a party, obviously. So that was that was the, the vibe. So when you raced in Spain, did you had like a hero you did look up to? Like whatever, Lichareta? Or did you have a favorite <laughs> team you always wanted to join in your childhood dreams? How was it for you? For me, for example, I always looked up to John Kelly. I always loved John yeah. Kelly. Yeah, well, Sean Kelly was actually I will, every time I see Sean on obviously on Eurosport commentary, I remember him because and I tell him, man, when I moved to 
to Spain, it was through Catalonia and he was leading that race. And there was one final stage that slightly uphill that he, he was on a, um, on a breakaway with, with Juan Fernandez and Juan Fernandez put him on the gutter, you know, back in the eighties, no helmets, you know, like crazy racing. And I remember Sean kicking Juan Fernandez's head, like, get me out, just making his room out of the barriers. He was literally in the barriers. Can't remember whether he beat Juan Fernandez or not, but I do remember he lived in the race and really fighting for that. Nowadays, on a reaction like that, they will be both completely out of the race. But, you know, <laughs> time was different, obviously. Well, man, I mean, but you raced for some pretty iconic teams. You know, you started off uh, for the first couple of years on the Relax Flu and Brada team. Then you went to ibanesto.com. So how was it making that step from a kid from Argentina that came to Spain, racing 23, under 23 races up in the Pay Basque region, getting on a smaller team, and then upgrading to that team, which was iconic. I mean, you know, Miguel Indurain r rode for that hmm. team, for goodness sake. Um, what was what was that culture like? What you know, riding on that team with such a history, and obviously Miguel uh, Indurain being being part of that organization for so long. Yeah, it was like the same staff, basically, it's the same DSs that I would watch on telly of Indurain getting all the Tour de France and Giro Italia victory. So you could still breathe and and feel the atmosphere of Miguel Indurain there despite not him being on, in the team so there was all chats about oh Miguel used to do this Miguel used to do that and and this is how we I don't know prepare for these races with Miguel and obviously Miguel didn't want to ride the classics so you don't have to ride the classics but that not, that wasn't true 100% one of the reasons that that I I I went there because I I remember having the chance as well of of um you know maybe going to to csc back in the days i remember talking with johnny wells and that was one of the options so and at the end my management and whoever was dealing with my contract advised me no no you better stay in a spanish team it will be a better option for you because you want to learn in the classics so you're gonna get the chance of going to the classics without really having the pressure to 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 get the spot or not races or basically trying to work for other riders. And that was true. I made two years, wrote two years in, in Banesto, completely, you know, free and, and enjoying that freedom on the classics. And then I, I was more domestic for other riders. It was, as you will say, a very good team and a big team, not with the culture of the classics. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving that team after two years and moving on to Fasa Portolo. Wow. Hey, um, a quick note um, about uh, the Banesto team when you just mentioned it. It, it was all about uh, Miguel in the Rhine, right? We yeah. had a race um, and I came across, like after the TT, I came across some of the team members from Banesto, right? <laughs> and um, I checked their bikes just out of curiosity and, and I went, geez, you guys are on 8-speed. Everybody else is on 10-speed. <laughs> and he looked at me and went, yes, our director, Echevari, right? Correct? Yeah. Echevarri told us, Miguel Indurain won the Tour de France five times on eight-speed. It's good enough for you. If Indurain can win the Tour on eight-speed, it's good enough for you. Nothing has changed, just like you just said. It's all about Miguel for years yeah. and years. I was just, I was sh almost shocked. I didn't know if I have to <laughs> laugh or feel pity for the boys that you have to use old material because it was good enough for Miguel. 
But um, yeah, that shows you how much of influence he had in that team. Definitely, yes. I mean, I didn't know that anecdote, but obviously it's very cool because that reflects and illustrates a lot what that team's about was about those years. Was he was the reference, and and if Miguel was able to do things and with certain materials, why looking for something else? So it was the way. It was such an old school team in that way. Like especially the staff has so much power on the riders that like as a cyclist from that team, you wouldn't do what you wanted to do. You wouldn't request like, hey, I want a better bike or I want a better bus. They were like, no, you don't need it. That's what you get. So, and it was a bit like contradictory because it was the best Spanish team ever and you could get and they could afford anything they wanted. But everyone there was above the cyclists. It was a bit hierarchy in there and they will always remind you like, I mean, a mechanic or a Swanee who who would have been in the Tour de France with those victories would have been higher on the hierarchy than a Neopro, obviously, because that I mean that rider meant nothing for them. Wow, wow, that must have been <laughs> that must have been so cool because obviously Miguel Indurain was was one of my um, heroes growing up. But then then uh, in 2004, I mean, I wish you would have come to CSC. Jens and I would have been happy to have you there. But you went to Fossa Bartolo, and sure. that was another mega team. I mean, with tell us a little bit about uh, Ferretti, your, your old DS there. And, and it seemed like, I mean, you guys won so many races and had so many good riders on that team. I mean, you rode with Paolo Bettini, Pataki. I mean, the list goes you know on and on. What was that like going from... Benesto to Fasa. It was my dream, you know, Italian teams. And back in the days, I remember being subscribed to Italian magazines. I used to read those magazines. And, and obviously, it had a completely different approach to Spanish media. And it was a lot about Italian culture of cycling and was not just narrowed onto what was happening in, in the Italian country. It was also, they were dreaming about the Northern Classics. And, and, from the first moment I joined the team, I could smell like a lot of guys just trying to achieve the same goals that I, or, or going to the races that I wanted to race. They were excited as well to go into Paris-Roubaix and Flanders. I joined there as well, Fabian Cancellara that year, as he was still young, but he was so talented. And, and it was so different. And as you say, Ferretti was a team manager, a rider who would have, a manager who was before manager of famous MG Techno Gym and good stories there and let's say with more background on the classics so for me he was the reference he was the guy who i would learn a lot from and i would get a lot of advice from i remember uh actually bobby that we we finished i think they narrowed the stage because of the snow but you were leading that race that Paranese, and think jan kirsipu won that stage and we made this it wasn't really crosswinds, but we knew that it was a short descent and uh, a narrow bridge at the bottom of the descent. So it was all planned. And we got from the car, guys, you're going to hit the front before the descent all together there. And the third guy, Dario Frigo, who was not a good descender, is going to let the wheel go. And, <laughs> and so it wasn't really an attack. It was just like a, a strategically... Um, you know, masterpiece of, of how to get off the bunch and, and gain some seconds. And, and from that little bridge, 
it was how long 10k's to the finish line and uh yeah you were sitting there Bobby you were happy it was a good situation for you and, and I remember like Jan Kirsipu is the last man you want to be in that group because he was such a hard rider you wouldn't let you know you wouldn't get rid of him so we were on that last kilometer attacking him all right then and then contra-attacking him and he would close the gap on us and he would and finally thanks god was fabian obviously it was fabian and myself there and fabian i don't know how he managed to beat him right on the line but that was beautiful race oh man i'm kind <laughs> of uh glad that you brought that up because i was not leading perry nice at that time jens was the leader of okay. our team and i remember okay. we we had that hard climb and we get to the top everyone's on the limit and i see four of you guys, five of you guys lined up on that descent. Fabian is hitting it. You're hitting it at every switchback. I mean, it's like thousand watts out of every switchback. And like you said, Dario <laughs> Frigo could not descend at all. And I'm like, no. if I don't get around this kid, the race is over. <laughs> I get around him. We, we hit the bottom of the descent. You guys are just going Mach 10. And like you said, Kirsipu was in there. And I'm hiding at the back. I'm like, I just don't want any of these guys to see me because like I could take the lead in Perry Nice right here. And really because of your guys' attack and because you guys were so motivated for that stage win, I just sat on the back and we wound up taking 28 seconds on the Peloton. And due to that, I won Perry Nice. So I won Perry Nice on a descent of just making a tactical <laughs> choice of seeing you guys set it up. And I said, if I don't get around this guy who can't descend, the race is over. I got around him, luckily held on by the, the skin of my teeth, and, and the rest was history. And um, <laughs> I, I told Fabian that story not long ago. I said, you know, you, you and Fletcher won Perry Nice for me because that's where I made the difference. <laughs> I mean, I, I only wound up winning Perry Nice by eight seconds because uh, Valverde kept winning the stages and taking the time bonuses. So um, thank you for, for hitting the gas there and um, helping me win. I, I should have split you in on uh, the prize money there. but Well, at least it was you. I'm happy that you won it. And, and we brought some, some, you know, we put some on, on that strategy on your benefit as well. Yeah, everybody, everybody got something out of it. You know, Fabian got the stage win, took the, mm. took the yellow jersey. And, you know, the next day I was able to take it over because we finished up on top of Montferrand. But um, enough of that reminiscing stuff. So, yeah. so then from Fasa, which was you know such an amazing team, then you go to another iconic team for a couple of years, Rabobank. And how was that? I mean, you were, you were on a Spanish team, then an Italian team. Now you're on a Dutch team, and you were always you know the the thing that intrigued me about you was you were kind of that black sheep. You were a Spanish rider that loved the classics. So was that a, was Rabobank a good fit for you? I mean, if any team knows the classics, they they're one of those teams. They were, but you know, they joined obviously Oscar Freire and Pedro Rillo, which were also Spanish. And Oscar would go more for other type of classics, more Arden or San Remo, and uh, and the World Championships, obviously. But um, Pedro and myself, who we were, the, as you well say, like a bit of a black sheep, two riders in, Rabobank, Dutch team, so much culture in, in, in the classics. And, and we were from, coming from a country with zero culture of the classics and willing to be doing well there. So that was a bit awkward, not usual to, to see. And, and yeah, we were there. We were happy. We had obviously ups and downs in that team, obviously, because 
Rabobank, I always say, you know, they were to they were always towards more of the Dutch interest. It was a Dutch team, hundred percent, with a Dutch sponsor. And I remember being once in Roubaix or Flanders, like happened to maybe lead the race as a team, but then I ended up working for another Dutch younger rider who maybe wasn't as good or didn't show as much in previous years. So that was a bit uh, contradictory sometimes, like uh, or frustrating. But at the same time, I managed to race with. Uh, it happened. I, it happened to race with me with guys like Matt Heyman and um, who we also joined later on in the next team. And yeah, I mean, I take good four years of Rabobank. Well, four was enough, especially, and and I think it was time to change after that. Well, talk about that change. I mean, you changed to a brand new team. No one knew anything about it. It was called Team Sky back then. What? <laughs> what? I mean, you know, what? What was? What was it that that just it made you curious about joining that team? Because that that was a leap of faith. I mean, now we know that it was you know turned out to be one of the best teams, if not the best team ever. But in two thousand and ten, it was nothing but a bunch of promises. And you coming off these strong teams with so much experience and so much, uh, you know, goals. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your conversation with, with Dave Brailsford and, and joining that team. Yeah, it's funny because now you say every time that a new team is about to come out, there's always concerns and question marks. There. And I remember when I was quite decided about it, getting a lot of comments from you know, the staff of Rabobank, are you sure you're going there? I heard they have some financial problems <laughs> at Team Sky. <laughs> so they made, everyone made you feel a bit insecure about signing for such a new thing. And um, But obviously, I heard about that team happening a couple of years before. And um, I think they were around the Olympics. So 28, I think, was Beijing Olympics. So after the Olympics, there were some rumors about that sponsors Sky becoming also a team, Steam Sky. So it wasn't new, but I didn't really knew uh, Dave or, or Shane or people who was at that time kind of building that team. And uh, yeah, I, I, they got interested and I think it was around this time in 2009 where things started to become closer, negotiations, chats and talks. And I was pretty much decided and earlier. I mean, early that year, 2009, I said, or I had, it was clear for me, I had to change team. It was time for me to, to try something new. And that Team Sky was completely new, 100% from zero, from scratch, and with a complete new mentality. And it was an adventure because I didn't know exactly what I was going to find there or, 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 or meet or, or happen. But, as a rider, it was a good decision, I think. And at the same time, I think Matt Heyman was in the same position. And I remember back in that summer that we were discussing, like, oh, what do we do? I'm a bit undecided. Should, should we go to Team Sky or not? So we, we were also having our chats and our concerns about joining something new like that. And it ended up being fabulous. We all heard about that first camp in November and it happened to see the bus and all the structure they had and it was mind-blowing really spring is finally here if you're just getting back on the bike and worried you're not in race form don't worry active pass from outside has you covered 
Jens and I are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events, and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and Backpacker. And there's more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it is $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code, BobbyYens25, that's B-O-B-B-Y-J-E-N-S 25 at checkout, you'll get another 25% off. Go to velonews.com forward slash active pass and enter BobbyYens25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. So what would be, looking back at your career now, where do you think you had your best times, where you had the most fun in your um, in your career? Was it also when you had the most success, or did you sometimes have parts where you go, well, I wasn't that successful that year, but the season was awesome with the team. Um, any uh, special memories on that? Well, now, if I go back, I think Fasa Bortolo years, they were great fun. We we raced and as a team a lot, and um, I personally learned a lot. Obviously, I achieved some good results as well. But as fun on the races, I think was number one. It was a bit of mix of old school racing and structure to a bit of like old school because Ferretti for many was a bit too much of a surgeon. You know, it was a bit too much of a of a character, but. But we all had good fun there. And um, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Team Sky from scratch. Starting there was really good fun. And uh, it's hard to say one this being decided for one team or one year. But looking back was, I think, Fasa Bortola Sky. They were the both highlights. I mean, throughout this career, I mean, you, you did switch teams again and go to Vacon Soleil in, in 2013. Um, but, you know, this, this sport is so brutal. We saw it with, with Perry, Perry Nice over the weekend. I mean, you, you, you know, you had great success, but then there was also some, you had your share of bad luck. Um, you know, I remember Gent Wevelgem with Nico Matan um, <laughs> drafting and catching you, and I'm just watching it on TV, like yelling at the TV, like "No, like Fletcher's got to win this." <laughs> and I remember another time, like when you were doing a time trial, I think it was in Tour Qatar, and the barriers blew down, and oh, yeah. somehow you didn't crash. And then the the most famous one was when you got hit by that car in the Tour de France, and you and was it Johnny Hogerland? Like flipped into yeah. the ditch and into the barbed wire fence and everything like that. I mean, what? Tell us, tell us about that because I mean, we saw it on TV. But who did you ever find out who was driving that car? Oh yeah, we there was a whole court case around it, and uh, it went on and on. And he was driving a kid, like someone a kid. I mean, someone around thirty, who was driving this VIP car from the production company that was producing French TV broadcast, basically. So we're driving someone important that day and they were in a rush to to get to the airport or get to the finish line, basically. And um, despite not having the 
the allowance from the jury that day to overtake the breakaway, the driver or the guest or someone there put pressure on the driver to, despite not having that green light to overtake us, he he went on and said, no, no, we got to go. Just make your best and let's get up to the front. And it, it was narrow road as you you know, you might, you can find it on, on YouTube for sure and see that crash again. But the driver managed, the, the the driver apparently was found himself like with a tree and he was either hitting the tree or hitting the riders. So he went right back to the road and he does <laughs> hit the riders, the cyclists. I mean, there's... that was really bad luck. About it. I mean, because that day was, was such a good stage. I mean, I really wanted to, to do good that day. One of the the things, other than you being that very interesting character, Spanish writer in the classics, the number one thing that drew me towards you when I was racing with you, or when I was still racing, was your best, the best victory salute ever on the planet, bar none. What? Yeah. Tell us about your victory <laughs> salute, the the drawing back of the bow. The release of the Fletcher or the the arrow, um, did did you always do that from when you were a kid, or was that something that just kind of came in? Because I forget, I think it was a stage of the tour that I saw it the first time. But whenever it was, because I you know I know you won a lot of races. When I saw that, I was like, okay, that that is awesome. Like I want to meet this dude. But tell <laughs> tell us a little bit about the famous Fletcher salute. Well, it came out like. To know exactly inspire how, and but it was cool to do something when when winning. So I did my first salute on Fuenlabrada, my first uh, continental team pro team on a small race in Spain, victory, and I did it again in Portugal, and obviously happened to be winning to that to the France stage, and on my own solo ride the finish line, and yeah, that obviously was gonna do it, but. Uh, it went popular there into the France because I think everyone was a bit too shy on like uh, just celebrating with this standard victory salute and with your arms. And that was a bit more flashy. Let's say it was a bit more showy. <laughs> and it was funny because next day as well, it was that time trial and um, a lot of crowd like public on the, on the roadside was mimicking what I did the day before. And uh, then I realized what, what the impact that salute had. And still today, people remember. I have to say as well, I remember Jens that day. I think he was, he, he had to leave his saying hello with his face. Yes, date. I was about to say, um, <laughs> yo, one of your best days in your career was one of the worst moments in my life. I was already, you were like, I, I, I had some sort of food poisoning. I don't know. And, I was already dropped in a neutral and um, like halfway through the stage at the feet zone, you were already in the break. Yeah. I was already like 25 minutes behind the peloton and that day time limit was only 18 minutes. So I was already halfway through, way over the time limit and the team said, no, 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 you got to stop. It doesn't make sense. And I was like so lost in my little own world. Like, no, no, no. I think they're just behind that next corner. I can still oh catch them. Let me go. He said, no, no, no. And then 
while you were like letting your arrow fly, I was just <laughs> vomiting my guts out in the car and outside the car. Oh, I was just sick as a dog for like three days. And to make it even worse, my parents were there to see oh, me no. in the tour. So I give that stomach bug to them. So we, oh, went, my we were all like sitting back home in my little house and friends and being like crooked as a dog for like three days, my entire family. Yeah, it was just awful. But anyway, it was a great victory, Salut, and it was a good win by you. That's for damn sure. Thanks. thanks. Oh. I'm sorry to hear that, that it went past to everyone in the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was terrible, actually. You know that. Okay, so Perry Roubaix, you know, you're retired. You can go back in time. You have a time machine now. There's, yeah. there's five guys in the lead group coming out of Carfe des Arbes. Who would be those other four guys in that breakaway with you? Who would be your favorite guys to be fighting out Perry-Roubaix victory with? Through all of, maybe not even the riders that you, you know, that we race with, but who would be your top, who, who would be in that breakaway with you that you would just absolutely be a dream scenario? Oh, that'd be a nice place. And obviously, I think it's important to be with riders that, a, they inspire you as a cyclist or, or to be on that race. And and B, they were also cooperating and they were also happy and they were also riding in the front to get to the bad drum. So it had to obviously George Hickapy, definitely him. And um, I say that because I was with him and Tom Bourdin on, on, on 2004, which, which happened to be my first podium in Roubaix. And, and we loved it. I mean, I, I think... Just riding with him towards the veteran with George was 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 a complete highlight, and um, so definitely George Hinkerby, definitely Tom Boonen, definitely Fabian Cancellara, uh, Matt Heyman as well. He was such a great domestic many years, and he happened to win that race on a fabulous way. So definitely Matt Heyman as well. And I need one more guy. I tell you, it will not be Torusha. Definitely not him. I mean, he will he will not ride. He will try to be too smart, so he wouldn't be welcome in that scenario. And one other guy. What about Yenzi? Yenzi uh, wouldn't. Yenzi would be your guy. He'd be, he'd be stoking the fire. He he would. He'd he be would like, be too dangerous. Yeah. He would be too. Dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> he would be too. I had a because. Let me just quickly explain this. With Jens on the road, I mean, he he would be the last guy you want to be with. I mean, he would make your your breakaway so hard it's so <laughs> difficult he is so hard i mean i i had a nightmare with jens because at the same time that that year that was winning uh that to the front stage and jens happened to be in the broom bag and, and or, or having to stop that race something similar to me happened back in 2009 if i if i'm right so was that stage you were leading the race with carlos sastre and it was Friday before arriving to Paris. So it was Friday, lumpy stage, last Ooh, chance of a breakaway. One of the hardest days in my life. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Memories coming back. People out of time limit and everything. Oh, yes. I was there. I was in that yeah. out of time limit. But i tell you what happened because that's where the nightmare and my, my, my dance, please not with him, becomes from. <laughs> and it's because... We were on the breakaway from the start and we were riding towards that five, 10 kilometers climb, you know, 5%, nothing too serious. The stage was hard. 
And as I say, it was the last chance for a breakaway. Next day was the time trial and then Paris. So I remember like getting a minute on that 10 riders breakaway. So, all right, that's, that's done. You know, we, we're going to make it to the finish line. But I don't remember for what reason, maybe someone in that breakaway wasn't interested or wasn't good for you guys or, or more guys were trying to attack. But I remember turning around on that climb and seeing the bunch chasing, Jens leading that bunch with his warrior face, like, you know, like killer, complete killer domestic. And I think that completely traumatized me. I mean, I went, I went like, I just got, you know, the bunch closed the gap. I couldn't stay on the wheels. The jury made a barrage there, like two case to the top of that climb. So I had no convoy to shelter myself and to be, you know, resting and recovering from all that effort. So I found myself drop on my own on that stage. So from leading the race in 5K, everything changed. No barrage, so no convoy. And after on the descent, I remember Eric Decker, who happened to be in the second car, he's like, Fletcher, it's going to be a long day today. So I was on my own chasing. The next rider was well, Fabian Beckman. So we were two already. And I think we chased another two, three guys. We were, ended up being like five guys. Similar situation to your out of control of 18 minutes. This was maybe 21 minutes. And we were across the finish like with 21 and a half. So we're out of to the France on Friday before Paris for 30 seconds. So imagine, sorry, but you were not welcome on that, on that out of car four. I was, I, I will just, just quit the race automatically. Yanzi, well, <laughs> that, that would be one heck of a breakaway. Fabian Conchalara, <laughs> Tom Bonin, Juan Antonio Fletcher, George Hincapi, Matt Heyman. Dang. I love it. it on. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we went down that rabbit hole a little bit deep. You know, let, let's talk about you after retirement. I mean, one thing that I really respected about you was that you had other interests outside of cycling, even when you were racing. And surfing pops to mind. Like, what cyclist, when he's, you know, racing and training, goes surfing? But Juan Antonio Fletcher... Love surfing. Tell us, tell us a little I, bit about, other than cycling, the interests and the hobbies that you had when you were racing, and then especially now. I mean, you're a television broadcaster. You know, you're into photography. You know, I've I've seen on Instagram that you're doing gravel riding. Like, you got a family now. Let's like, what is the typical day of Juan Antonio Fletcher in 2021? Well, well, a lot has changed since since my first year after retirement, and since then, as you say, now it's more parenting. It's more being a dad. I have two girls. One is she will be two years in in April, and the other one is just four months. So it is pretty intense, and obviously, I combine it with uh, TV broadcast commentary, and also I have my own. I started a year ago my own YouTube channel all in Spanish. So yeah, it's all a bit that. And before that, obviously, as you will say, obviously now also fill up my free time with my hobbies, surfing when it happens and when it's possible. And, but before that, obviously we, with my wife, Jess, we did a lot of trips and we tried to, to be in different surf locations and try to surf and, and just see the world a little bit on from a different perspective, like the one cycling gives you. And, um, 
Yeah, I think that was very good, you know, just after so many years being so focused on a sport, trying to, to learn from other sports and trying to practice other sports. And and that, in my case, was like, as a cyclist, as you will say, was already interested in windsurfing and surfing. So every time was a big conditions. We live here by the sea in South Barcelona. So it was a frustrating. Oh, my God, I have to ride five hours today. But look, there's some waves, there's some wind. Oh, can't do it now. So... I, it was clear for me that by the time I was off the bike, I was going to dedicate 100% to that. And I did that for a few years. I studied also at university. I graduated from, from uni. I did four years remote studying and, and um, in marketing and markets research. And they were fantastic years. I mean, just not really knowing what to do after your career. I think that's a situation that every cyclist finds himself on. And, um, but yeah, doing something, you know, not, 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 not stopping, just doing things. And, and yeah, this is 2021, <laughs> doing multiple things and enjoying them all. That's great. Hey, Yenzi, did, was that the, um, the hand signal that you have to get out of here? Uh, yes, my daughter just came past that day. They wrote a little sign, Dad, you got to be nine minutes at your rehab. Actually, okay. uh, Juan Antonio, I did break on a stupid bike crash. I did break my ankle 1st of December, and now I'm still doing a little bit of rehab. I'm back to, I would say, 99%, Whoa. but I did break my ankle. Damn painful that was. Oh my, my first crash into retirement, basically, or my first big air crash. So I was yeah, five years without crashing in retirement. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. That's very impressive. Sorry about your recovery now and your broken ankle. As you say, that must have been so painful. So, yeah, wish you all the best on that, Jens. And um, so do you actually ride gravel or you actually do race for a result or you just want to no. go through and finish them? No, no, no. I don't, I don't aim to do any races. I just hmm. enjoy riding and getting a gravel, a gravel bike was one of those things that I had to do recently. And, and I got landed one from Pactor, a gravel LS. And um, I'm loving it. The thing here... South Barcelona, we're not like in Girona with a lot of variety of roads. Bobby's been here, motorpacing me. So, you know, if you want to ride, there's not many roads. You're, but once I, you have the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, so you only have half of that land, options. And north, we have Barcelona. You're not going to get there for training. So you only have like two, three roads to go up. But on the other hand, you got plenty of trails and and gravel rides that obviously open absolutely more all that variety and, and makes it a lot more fun and safer, Gra obviously. Gravel <laughs> is cool, isn't it? And also what I like about it is there's no cars, no traffic lights. Yeah. It's just much more relaxing because, you know, you're just there with yourself or whatever, your partner, right? It's it's always good. It is beautiful and you can go relax or you can go very fast with a gravel bike. That's maybe one of the things that impresses me the most. It can get you back to that Paris-Roubaix a little bit because running fast in those conditions is so much adrenaline going on. And I think we're still a bit adrenaline junkies after six or five years of racing. So sometimes, it, I mean, if it happens, you're welcome it, obviously. Okay. Well, Juan, it was great catching up with you. I got to cut myself out. I got to go. I love you all. See you, Jensi. Ciao. Ciao. See you. See you, Jensi. Thanks. There was a couple more things I wanted to talk about as far as the racing now, you know, mm -hmm. we have the classics coming up. We have the big races. Like, you know, they had Strada Bianchi. They had the first weekend, opening weekend in Belgium. Now guys are doing Perinice and Torino. Um, I'm curious to hear from you, like, what is a typical build for a classics rider? And 
How do you use those stage races as preparation for the big objectives that are right around the corner? Well, first of all, I think it always comes like deciding whether doing Pyrenees or Tirreno Adriatico. And um, I think personally, like Tirreno, especially watching it this year, it's like Tirreno is giving a lot more, a lot of mileage, a lot more endurance, and it's it happened to be also like maybe a harder race as well. So. Depending on where you are and your preparation, I think you'd rather choose to go for one or to the other one. And uh, obviously, Tirreno tells you a lot about San Remo because there's like three stages over 200 kilometers, long stages, Helia, and everyone more thinking on San Remo. I think you get more the San Remo vibe, but at the same time, you might get more days away from home, so that might interfere in your personal, you know, life and 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 what you want to do. So I think there's a lot of ingredients there. I think the older you get, or at least in my case, the older I was getting, I couldn't be away for so long from home, and and I had to be more and more at home. That was one of the reasons why I decided to to stop when I decided because I I just wanted to be more at home. So, but going back to your question about. Tirreno and Pyrenees preparing. I think that the first races of the year that you go not just one day, but two days in a row, three days over those 200 kilometers in a, in a bike race. And that's very important because you might have been preparing, simulating all those races a lot, but you do actually need to put in practice. You do need to be on those stage races, be with your team and also race one day and the next day and getting over that malice that's the number one fear of the beginning of the season what happens with my condition when i go over 200 kilometers because that's what going to that's the place where you're going to have to perform later on a month later which is not that long uh in flanders and roubaix you need to see how your body performs and reacts on a bike race after that 200 kilometers and your mind as well obviously so that brings me to a, a question that I've always had that maybe you would have much more um, knowledge about. You know, nowadays, it seems like the, the calendar and the training programs are so specific. Um, do you feel that riders have to race a lot or can they come directly off a training block and jump into those long classics? Or do you feel they have to do either Paris or Terreno? You don't have to. I think it's more a mental thing. And we experienced that, Bobby. You were coaching me back in the days when I had a hand injury in 2011. And I couldn't, was just right before Tirreno Adriatico. And I missed Tirreno Adriatico. I couldn't race it. So I was just on my tubo trainer. And I was so stressed about it. And I remember you just showing me all those performance charts and saying, listen, if you just try to keep and hold this form, I'm sure you're going to be good. I ended up being fifth in Paris-Roubaix without racing Tirreno. I raced the first day, was uh, Tour of Flanders. We happened to finish also up the front. And the next weekend I was on, on Roubaix, being top five. So that shows that we know so much about preparation at this. We have so much data that racing, I think it brings you a lot. And, and it's really hard to train in order to achieve the level of racing, but it gives you the advantage of kind of prepare and train the way you want to work on. It happened as well that 
you sometimes major concerns when you go to this race are like, oh, is it going to be too easy race? Is it going to be too hard? Or is it going to be neutral? So you don't know. There's sort of factors you can't control really on a bike race because maybe you go to a race and they start cancelling the stages because of the bad weather. So you're stuck there and without really preparing yourself as you wanted to be, as you planned to be because you were on those races. So you have to restructure everything once you get back home. Well, if you don't do those races, you say, listen, I'm not just going to have this block of training and I just work on the specific areas that I need to work and need to improve. And there you are. And you go to your goals with the confidence that you've done your work, your homework. Juan Antonio Fletcher, thank you so much for your time and uh, been great catching up with you. I can't wait to one day get on the gravel bike with you and uh, tool around and have fun like the old days. That'd be so cool, Bobby. I will be really looking forward for that as well. Thanks for having me today, Bobby. It's been a pleasure. Okay, folks, here we are with the segment hashtag shut up legs rider of the week. For myself, I have to go with Primo's Rolich. It was so sad to see what happened to him. I mean, he won three stages in Paris Nice on the final day which was a truncated stage due to the fact that they couldn't finish on the on the promenade des anglais he wound up crashing not once but twice having a bike problem dislocated his shoulder apparently and still bravely finished the race i think a lot of people in his situation would have just pulled the plug so for me primos rolich hashtag shut up legs rider of the week award for myself this week's Shut Up Legs ride goes to Tadej Pogacar because he started in two stage races and won in both. And in between, he participated in that epic event of Strade Bianchi where he finished seventh. So, out of three races so far, his worst result is seventh. Two stage races, two wins. He is the man of the week. Tadej Pogacar, Shut Up Legs rider of the week. Well, that's all the time for this week. Huge thanks to Juan Antonio Fletcher for joining us. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. This show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Kirk Warner. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.